from Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges, where we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, let's get into it. Our purpose? To do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage, and the rest of us? Well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations, and together, let's etch the edges. Welcome back to Etch the Edges. Today, our special guest is Lisa Marie Bristol. Lisa Marie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I want the folks to understand that Lisa Marie is doing something that's critically important. And you've heard me talk about this time and time again. All politics is local. And just to be real clear, I ran into Lisa Marie at one of our local Democratic events. You know, things that folks probably don't always go to, whatever your party is, we won't get into all of that. This is Edge the Edges. We like to etch the edges and try to close the ideological divide. So what I'm going to say applies to both parties or independents or whatever it is you want to be. But the point is to be engaged locally, to understand what's going on around you. So I was there. And interestingly enough, I ran into Lisa Marie because she had her material and she let me know I'm running for Gwinnett's Solicitor General. For those of you who don't recall, I live in Gwinnett. This is my home. We love it here. And there used to be this big sign that said, Gwinnett is great. Well, there's effort and work that goes into making it great. And to be quite honest, I think Lisa Marie is really trying to put a foot out there to make sure we maintain that status of things are great in Gwinnett. Is that about right, Lisa Marie? It is. Um, it really is. You know, um, Gwinnett is great. My husband and I chose Gwinnett intentionally as our home deliberately over 10 years ago. Um, this was the community we wanted to raise our family in, and that's what we're doing. We have three kids who are here. I have one child in each school in my cluster. So mornings are very interesting in the Bristol household. Uh, but this is where we wanted to raise our family, where we want to call home, and we made the decision deliberately. And so I love Gwinnett. I want it to continue to be the best county in Georgia. Absolutely. And I could not have said it any better than you just did. And to be quite honest, I'm going to let you know, I'm going to try in the next <laughs> podcast so to actually one up you on that, because to your point, this place is great. And, I, and I've said it before. I think, to be quite honest, Gwinnett County looks like the template for what the rest of this nation should and can be. Our level of diversity is ever expanding. It's great. We've got folks who get along no matter what ethnicity, whatever your skin color. We've got leaders in every facet, every dimension of the structure that forms our socioeconomic background and how this county is run. You can look left, right, up, or down and find yourself running a business, 
running some aspect of government, policing our spaces. This, this is a really wonderful place to live. And that takes us back to what you're doing. So, you know, for those that don't know, we want you to clarify and elucidate. You're running for Gwinnett County Solicitor General. And I guarantee you, Lisa Marie, most folks don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, a lot of people don't. And that's, you know, preferably a good thing. So the Gwinnett County, the Solicitor General is the top prosecutor in the county that handles the prosecution of all misdemeanors and traffic violations and county ordinances. So if you are charged with a misdemeanor or if you have a traffic ticket, um, a county ordinance violation, and there's no felony attached to it, the jurisdiction lies with the Solicitor General's office. The way it works here in Georgia, uh, depending on the population, of the county that will dictate whether or not you have a solicitor general's office or just a district attorney's office. So all of the metro counties do have both because we're very well populated, obviously. Absolutely. And so the solicitor would handle all misdemeanors, like I said, in traffic court and county ordinances and felonies remain with the district attorney as well as juvenile court. Absolutely, I was gonna ask you to make sure we restate that because you mentioned that cutoff line a little early and I wanna make sure Folks do understand that for those that would say, well, you've already got this other top attorney in the county. How does that work? You just stated it. Those are the differentiating factors. And that's important to understand because you want to make sure you're participating in both of the elections. You want to have skin in the game. And it, it's funny. It is like you said, you really don't want to know me. But, you know, <laughs> if you yes. do, it's great right. to have had some some input into who's sitting in the seat in that office. So before we go further into that, let's get some background on Lisa Marie, where you come from, who you are. And then, you know, we want to walk our way up to why in the world do you want to do this? <laughs> well, absolutely. So I think one of the reasons why Gwinnett appeals to me so much, and as you pointed out, you said when you look around, you see everyone. And I actually was born and raised in Canada. And so I grew up in a very multicultural community. And Gwinnett really, in a lot of ways, reflects what I grew up experiencing and what I just absolutely love about my background. So my parents are actually both Caribbean, and uh, I immigrated to the U.S. after marrying my husband. And we've called Gwinnett County, well, we've called Georgia home, excuse me, for about 16 years now. So I went to law school here. I went to Georgia State, go Panthers, class of 09. And I have been practicing in Gwinnett County and other metro areas since then. I've been a prosecutor, I'm currently a prosecutor, excuse me, a senior assistant district attorney in DeKalb County. Uh, but walking back a little, I actually started on the other side. I started off doing defense work. So when I graduated from law school, um, sat for the bar and got barred, I started on the other side and I did indigent defense work down um, south of Atlanta. And then I went to the public defender's office in Walton County for three years. And shortly after that, I transitioned into prosecution. And I spent four wonderful years in the DeKalb Solicitor General's office. And I just realized that I knew so much about these other counties around me. I knew so much about what was going on in DeKalb and Fulton, and I had connections to Rockdale and Henry County, but I didn't know anything about my own county. I didn't know anything about Gwinnett. And so when the opportunity came for me to come home to Gwinnett to be a part of the district attorney's office, um, I struggled a little, I can't lie. Yeah. I was really comfortable 
in my role in DeKalb in the solicitor's office. It was a wonderful office, wonderful people. Um, but the opportunity to serve within my own community was just a really great opportunity. I didn't want to pass it up. And so I stepped out of my comfort zone mm -hmm. and came to the Gwinnett District Attorney's Office where I spent three years. And I'm currently a senior assistant district attorney in DeKalb County where I left. Um, I went back to DeKalb earlier this year. So I'd have space to run this race and run to be the next Solicitor General of Gwinnett County. All right, a lot of work, a lot of steps, but let's go ahead and take it back. So why the law? Why the law? Why oh, you want to go all the way back there? Yes, let's go back. Okay, well, I'll, I'm going to give you the honest truth answer about I'm why honest, I'm a lawyer. That's what, we're going to edge okay? the edges on that piece. Let's, let's, let's okay. hear it. Banana bonds. Okay. So I was actually pre-med. I was pre-med all through high school and into college. And I was sitting in an organic chemistry lecture one morning. And we were learning about banana bonds. And my professor was so excited to teach us about banana bonds. You could see the joy coming out of, like he was just, he was ready. He brought a banana to class to show us <laughs> how the bonds look. And I was just sitting there, you know, it's like 8.30 in the morning in this huge cold lecture hall. And this man was excited about banana bonds. It and I thought, I don't, <laughs> I said, I, eh. I mean, I can do it, yeah. but I wasn't excited about it. And I thought, how great would it be to be excited every day? Yeah. And so I, I stayed on in my major. I was a psychology major, getting my science degree. And I just started taking a bunch of psychology courses. And I took psychology and the law. And that was right. it. That was it. And I was like, well, I get my mom had always said, my mom, my teachers, they always said, you're going to be a lawyer. And I said, absolutely not. I'm going to be a pediatrician. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And between banana bonds and that psychology and law class, I was like, oh, now I got to go back and tell them all they were right. <laughs> but <laughs> it was honestly the, the just being able to be led organically in right. that path. Um, I will say it never felt forced. It never felt... It never felt like I was working against the grain. Like law yeah. school was a very natural, I mean, it's hard. It's it's a very challenging time, yeah. but I never felt like I was not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, one of the things I want to make sure I add to what you've put out there, because it's really critical. You know, at this point in my life, Lisa Marie, I'm really big on uplift and making sure that children understand and get exposed and know yes. that there are things out there for them. Because too often, especially within our given ethnicity, we don't think that opportunities are there for us. We can even look at a thing, see it on TV, but say to ourselves and our friends, well, that's not for us. And people like us who look like us and go through things we go through, we don't get to do that. That's right. not true. And the opportunities that came forward for you, your upbringing, the fact that you said you had space to choose and grew organically, we need to make sure that folks hear the stories, just like what you said, because with a little twist, a push there, those same opportunities can be made to come true for folks, children that are in the most underprivileged circumstances. They just need to know. You, know Absolutely. I mean, you went through this period of, I'm gonna be a pediatrician. I mean, it was a, it was a trifecta of, of forces that said banana bonds, mental state, 
and and the law and all yes. of that converge and hit you in the head and say, you know what? I need to get up out of here <laughs> and go over there because yes. that's what that's what's in, that's sparking my intellect. It's feeding my heart. It's stirring my soul. Yes, and that's say- not for everybody. And, you know, I wish, I wish that for everyone, I will say a huge part, seeing that you want to go back, I will say this, um, my parents are powerhouses, like my parents are outstanding. And I can truly say my brother and I had a tremendous upbringing. And it's not that we were rich. And it's not that we got everything we wanted. But there were no ceilings in my house. There were no, you can't, or you're not smart enough, or you're not, it was, if you work hard and you want something, we'll try. And if it doesn't work out, we'll try something else. Absolutely. You know, and so, and my mom poured in, my mom and my dad um, poured into us, that opportunity was always there. It may not come the way we think we planned for it to come, but it was there. And so that came with a lot of exposure to different things and different people within our community. So representation matters. Seeing people who look like you doing great things matters because it takes away the idea that, you know, oh, I can't, that space isn't for me. When you see someone occupying that space in excellence, who looks like you, who looks like your mom, who looks like your dad, who is your mom, who is your dad, you know, it takes away that kind of like, can I do this? Of course I can't. Now, am I going to put in the work to do it? Now, that's the question. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, But that was a big part. Um, So the teachers and the counselors and the principals that I had growing up. Um, I'm really blessed to say that at my wedding, I had two former principals, multiple teachers from high school. They were all at my wedding and they were all an active part of my life. My high school chemistry teacher, because I was um, (laughs) pre-med, is the woman, Mrs. Siapana, is the one who sat with me and helped me build my freshman schedule because I didn't really get how to do it. And she was the one who took the time to walk me through how I needed to build my schedule and how I need to navigate. You know, so having those kinds of influences in my life, having coaches who encouraged me to take the SAT, just see what happens. Yeah. Counselors advising me, take calculus, see if you like this t- teacher more than the other. Like I had that. And I know what a difference it makes when, when young people have people around them who just believe in their ability. And it was never a pressure. It was never, you have to get straight A's or you have to be a lawyer. You have to be a doctor. It was like, you have to get up and you have to keep trying and you have to like figure out what works for you. And and I'm grateful that I always have that. That that is awesome, Lisa Marie. Like uh, the the venerable rapper, singer, artist, CeeLo Green said in an old school rap, you need to get up, get out and get something. And if you do that, those things, whatever they may be, will come to you. But the other point that you make, and again, you keep bringing up things that are so important and not minor at all. You know, even when it's just one person that says to you, you can, and, and I know you've seen it over your life, I have too. That is powerfully impactful to a child. So when we've got these outsized communities of underprivileged kids, in many respects, their parents are too, 
So the mm -hmm. same message that has to go to the child has to go to the parent. And no matter what age bracket they're in, they may be struggling to think this isn't for me. You've got to make sure we instill that in the parent as well, whether it's two parents or one. We know how that yes. goes. The, the painful point is sometimes the child is suffering under the auspices of a parent that believes all of those things aren't for them as well. And it's a, it's a, it's a never ending cycle. So it takes us back to that old school adage. It takes a village. It, it, I was about to say that. You took village. the words out of my mouth. It does. It absolutely takes a village. Um, there's no way for a mother or a mother and father or just a father or whatever, whatever that unit looks like. There is no way for that to be the universe for that child. It's just it's children are tiring. They are. They are, they they are tired. <laughs> they are. A you lot got three. Work. I got one. I know it. <laughs> you know, and it just sometimes you know life is busy and and you just need help and it takes a village. And I had an amazing village. I come from a really large family. Um, my mom has never met a stranger. <laughs> and so our doors in our house are, were always open. They still are. And, and that's just kind of what I grew up in. And I said, really, when it brings me back to why we chose Gwinnett, I wanted to be in a community where I felt like we could build that. Absolutely. And we really have in a lot of ways. I have a tremendous village here. That is awesome. That is awesome. So that makes sense. Quick, quick, quick question. So I'm mm -hmm. assuming a biology, biology teacher, I forgot how you said her name. Was she Shiapana. Shiapana. Was she terribly disappointed when you abandoned the thing for the banana? Uh, and <laughs> you know, my chemistry teacher, Miss Siapana, she, I, you, actually, what I really called her was Mama Jopes, because um, her name was Josephine Siapana. And she was literally an Italian version of my mother. Wow. It was unbelievable. They had like similar outfits. They had a couple, like it was, it was kind of creepy, but in a beautiful <laughs> way. And she wasn't. She actually expected it. Wow. Very much really? so. Wait, so that goes like the whole thing. We know where you're going to go. And that's a wonderful thing, too, because when the village is engaged and the people are trying to make sure they're pouring into the, the children and an uplift is occurring, then for many of them, you can see directionally what's going to happen. And, and that's a powerful blessing that unfortunately too many kids just don't get to, to entertain or realize. We got to figure out how to change that. And I think Absolutely. it can be changed to your point when you be that example, you engage mm -hmm. and serve in an opportunity fashion that allows them to, to see people like you doing great things, which brings us to the point. So now you're, you're, you got your day job, you're over there, you're carving out the space and somehow or another you sat down one day and said, I'm going to run for this thing. <laughs> well, really? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Well, it, it, it was not that simple. Um, I will say that um, I got a phone call and, you know, somebody put the bug in my ear. They said, you know, I, I've known you for years. I've known you as a defense attorney. I've known you as a prosecutor and I know you. Um, I think this is something that you would be really good at. And I was like, really? Okay. Uh, well, I, I said, I will pray on it mm -hmm. and I will speak to my husband. And I, you know, that's a really big, big decision to make. Right. And we had a very long conversation. It's someone that I trust. And what scared me the most at the end of that conversation is I did not immediately say, absolutely not. I think that's the part that was like, oh no, oh, this, like I immediately had the vision. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, but I was so comfortable. 
You I came right so up to the edge and you were like, well, wait a minute. I think I see a bridge. Yes. And I was like, oh, but honestly, after, you know, talking with different people and I've worked in different offices, I've seen as a public defender, I saw how easy it was to get tangled up in our criminal justice system. Right. It really doesn't take much and how easy it is for things to snowball and how easy it is to get caught almost in a hamster wheel for our victims a lot of times, definitely for our defendants. And I've definitely seen how change can come about, how effective intervention programs are and diversion programs and you know, having those conversations with people, getting them the treatment, getting them in the program, getting the safety planning for your victim, having those resources accessible to them. You, you get those happy endings every now and then where somebody comes back and says, hey, look, you gave me a chance and I did it. You know, I finished school or, you know, we're, we're happily married and we just had another child or, you know, and, and so I know that it can work and I want to see that work. I want to see us building up our community um, because the reality is there's a difference between the people that we are scared of and the people that we're mad at. And we can't treat them all the same. Absolutely. And I think the solicitor's office, well, I know the solicitor's office gives you the best opportunity to make that distinction um, because the reality is they're misdemeanors. And so while they are still crimes and people still need to be held accountable and victims absolutely need resources and need to be made whole, you still have more room to work with in terms of treatment and alternative sentencing and accountability courts by the very nature of the crime, as opposed to when it's a felony. A lot of felonies have mandatory sentencing or your hands are just simply tied because of the trauma level that comes with the felony. Um, so, so the solicitor's office gives you an opportunity to really get in there in an earlier time and make an effective change. Right, and, this, and that kind of goes to, to some of the core things that when we first met and we were talking that kind of, to me, really clarified and informed why you made such a decision. You know, even in Gwinnett, where it's great, <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity. And um, there are folks struggling in the mid. And I, I, I think I would hazard a guess to say that your decision was not one out of arrogance, but or that this is me and I know I can do it, but out of a need. And you figured, well, I think that my approach might be the right one. But before we get into that, I wanted to go back and ask if you could just go ahead and add a little flavor on top of. You know, we have those folks that we fear. We have those folks that we are, we get mad at. That anger is part of the component. And why is that an important consideration as it applies to the power of the law? That's a huge consideration. Um, people break the law, commit crimes, get caught committing crimes in a variety of ways. Um, the people that we're scared of you know, the people who, who act with malintent, the people who seek to harm people, there, there's definitely, they need to be punished, they need to be held accountable, the victims need to be protected, absolutely. Um, there's no doubt in my mind about that. We need to ensure that our victims in our community don't just become victims again and re-victimized. Um, and then there's people that we're angry at, people who make really dumb decisions, people who are committing petty crimes that still have a harm 
they're still a victim. However, there's still room to correct the behavior, hopefully. Usually at the root of those issues you might have, maybe it's an alcohol and drug issue. Maybe it's a job instability issue. Maybe it's an undereducation issue, anger management issue. Those are treatable things that if we can at least give them a chance, like if the issue is the person might be stealing to supply basic needs, well, why are you stealing? Because they don't have their GED and they can't get a good job. Well, perhaps we need to partner them with an agency that can help them get their GED. There are schools and agencies in the metro area where, where people can go and get job training, trade skill training for free. We need to be tapping into those things as opposed to just putting them um, on this wheel of punishment, putting them on probation and charging them all these fees and not actually addressing the issue. So now they come out 12 months later they are in bigger debt than when they started. They still don't have job security. They still don't have the job training they need. They still don't have the education they need. And now they have a strike against them, right? And so we're just making it harder and harder and harder. Now, obviously there gets to be a point where you just have to say, look, I've tried my best. Now you've just made bad decisions. But I think for the sake of our community, we need to give them the chance to, to correct the issue. Because I think one of the biggest things that people don't realize, crime is not a law enforcement issue. It's a community issue. Right. It's, a, it's law enforcement, it is education, it is the business owners, like it's the health system, like it's all of us. It's a and so we're all issue. impacted. <laughs> it's everything, it is everything. It, it, it is, it's all intertwined. And so we can't just say, oh, well, that's a prosecutor issue or a defense attorney issue or a judge. Like, no, 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 because it affects all of us. So let's get in there. We have these great community partners, some of whom I've already worked with when I was in the district attorney's office, who have these programs, who have space to do these things. And we're, we just need to, we need to utilize them. We need to take better advantage of that. That is, you know, Lisa Marie, I don't even really know. I've been pausing for a minute because I remember this is kind of where we were starting the conversation when we met, and I couldn't have asked you for a better answer. I, I you know, it's it's just awesome, right? Because um, you and I, we talked about you know treating the symptoms as opposed to why crime actually exists. We we talked before about grace and giving people room to change their behaviors because you know even when you look at it from a cursory standpoint. There's enough there to see, even if it's just your feeling and your emotion, that if you give these folks, the majority of these folks, the opportunity, they can correct their lives. See, but some folks still, because they need to eat. And, and, and that's a big deal. But like you said, they get into this cycle. And the next thing you know, they're on the path to being a felon. And if you're not careful enough and life impacts them adversely enough, they become someone that you definitely should be scared of. And, and, and that's, that's a line that gets crossed. We don't want that and we can prevent that. The challenge always is, are we gonna put somebody like you in place to enact such things? Because we also know that for a lot of us, I think you need to keep saying that part that you're saying around, you know, they, they build up these bills, they can't get out, they get into debt. Well, we know there's a large constituency of us out there that think that what you're doing is all about punishment. You're not supposed to have this social component. Yeah, she, Lisa Marie's talking about psychology and all of that, but my psychology is <laughs> are supposed to put people in jail because that's where well, they belong. 
well, you know, um, really? Is, is that what our system should be about? It, it's not if it, not if we want it to work, <laughs> not if we okay. want to continue to live in the community. Um, again, you're right. There, there's a point where they might go for someone you're annoyed with or upset with, someone you're scared of. Um, but it's so much deeper than that. And, and it's not economical to put people in jail. It, it doesn't help. <laughs> it, it's a debt, really. Yeah. And it costs money. The longer cases sit on our dockets, it costs money. It, it just drags things along. The longer it takes to get a case resolved so that the person, maybe it's a sh- the store owner, can get their restitution or, or people can be made whole, that's a taxing on the system. And so it doesn't make sense to just throw people in jail. You cannot have a one size fits all approach because I, I use this analogy. I have three children and it, it tickles me because my three children have the same mother and the same father and they have been raised in the exact same household with the exact same opportunities. And all three of my children have to be disciplined differently. Mm -hmm. All three of them. And they're not far apart in age. You know, um, it's a five and a half year split between the three of them. And because of their personalities and because of how they learn and because of how they are as people, I have to approach each child differently. You can't have a one size fits all. And if it's as controlled of an environment as you have the same mother, father, household opportunities, you're being fed the same food, like we have controlled everything. And yet still here we are with three different personalities to deal with, three different methods of correcting behavior. You know, that that says something. It says a lot. The solicitor's office handles what, upwards of 12,000 cases a year? There's just no way you can have a one size fits all approach to something like that. And so I know if I want effective change, if I want the behavior to stop, that I might have to change how I correct it. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be in a place where we can deal with the, we need to be able to deal with the people appropriately and compassionately. So we're not disenfranchising people out the gate. Because the sad reality is, if you're going to connect with the criminal justice system, eight out of 10 people are going to connect with the solicitor's office first. And if we can effectively get those trainings in place, if we can effectively get the diversion or the treatment, um, the family violence intervention programs, the domestic violence um, safety planning, if we can get those things in place the first time and hopefully avoid them coming back. I think we all do better as a society. We all do better as a community. Absolutely. Again, couldn't have said it better. And, and I, for one, especially here in Gwinnett, where it's great, I can freely and honestly say, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because, um, you know, once upon a time, I was a bit more of a party and driving up 85 after hanging out in the bar in Buckhead, I had an unfortunate turn with an officer. And well, to be quite honest, it worked out all right. Because after I went through a program, <laughs> And took a look at some things and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm not one for a program. I don't need that. But, you know, the, the program was so complete, replete with detail and understanding that said, you know, there's a price to be paid for this type of behavior. I can say quite mm-hmm. honestly that the system did right by me in that regard, because I, I couldn't stand listening to a Georgia State Patrol officer talk about the time on I-85 
when the family was going north and they're coming home after a party and they were in an accident with the DUI guy and mm. the mother was on the side of the road holding her infant's head. You know, um, that's mm. real. That's yes. Real. You know, and all of those things are aspects that are handled by officers, by officers and offices that you're engaged in. And that, and that takes me to another point, the conversation we were having before. There's some things that you've dealt with in your job, in your role, some things that you've seen, especially when it comes down to victimhood and, and how you have to manage dealing through these cases that affected you deeply. And uh, from your perspective, you were saying quite troubling, right? You know, but these are things that have to be dealt with. Can you elaborate on that and tell our listeners, what are the things that you've gone through in this role? Things that, you know, um, weigh on you heavily, but you still feel accountable. I mean, you feel accountable and responsible. You're doing the work and the buck stops with you. It does. Well, um, let's see. I Well, as I told the listeners, I have worked on both sides. So I've done defense work and prosecution at each level from speeding tickets all the way up to murder. And um, it's not easy. There are some heavy cases. Um, and I, I think I was telling you earlier, um, I, I don't really talk about <laughs> my work with those who know me, um, like my church family, my friends. That's just not something I often bring up. And I remember being in the middle of a very, very heavy trial. Um, it was a murder trial and it was a very, the facts were very harsh. And just having a, like a, a, a moment at, after choir rehearsal where I finally like, spoke to my minister of music. And I remember him just asking like, are you okay? Do you need to talk? And I just kind of let everything out. And I was like, you know, weeping and talking about how taxing this case was and, you know, dealing with all the different components. And I look up and his eyes are so big. And he was like, I've known you for two years and I did not know that this is what you deal with every day. And I realized like, it's just not something I really talk about because it's heavy. It's heavy explaining, um, it's heavy sitting with your victims and, you know, watching them grieve, grieving with them, um, encouraging them and, you know, seeing sometimes the fear or the anger or the, the utter sadness in their eyes and just knowing you have to get up and you have to have a part of you that's separated a bit in order to do your job. And so it's not easy, um, but it's necessary. I think the moment I realized I would likely be a career prosecutor going forward, um, I was in state court at the time, I was a solicitor and I, we were in court and I left the courtroom for a little while and I came back and one of the attorneys had a young man at the podium and he was entering a plea. And I remember thinking, well, I thought he just had like a shoplifting. Why is he entering a plea from the jail calendar? And so I went up and I asked her what was going on. And she said, oh, he's going to enter a first offender plea. Now I'm going to pause right here for those who may not know. First offender is a once in a lifetime opportunity that you can use if you've not been convicted um, of a felony crime. Um, sometimes if you have a, a misdemeanor, you can still use it. Um, at the judge's discretion, but it gives you kind of like a do-over, right? So you've committed a crime, you've, you've pled guilty, you use your first offender. If you successfully complete your first offender, it's off your record. And you can honestly say you've not been convicted of a crime. And there are some ramifications if you don't successfully commit, um, complete your sentence. 
Um, but this young man was 19 or 20 and had been in the county jail for almost two weeks uh, for shoplifting about maybe $30 worth of goods from Walmart. So absolutely wrong, should not have been doing it. Absolutely need to be held accountable. But was entering a first offender plea. And I said, well, why, why is he doing that? Why are we not sending him to our diversion program? And the response was, well, I asked him, but he can't afford the fee for the program. At the time, I can't remember, it was maybe two or $300. And so he, he wants to take responsibility. And I stopped the plea. I said, judge, I'm really sorry. Um, I need to pull this plea. We can, the state can give him a signature bond and he can at least try, go home, yeah. try and come up with the money. You have a few weeks, you know? Now that junior attorney didn't do anything wrong, so to speak. She followed the rules. She didn't do anything malicious. Um, in fact, she thought she was doing a kindness by, you know, finding a way for him to get out of jail that day. But that was not the most efficient way to use that opportunity. Right. And that was something that, you know, it really stung with me because I thought, had I not walked in when I did, you know, what path could he have gone down? Absolutely. Now, I'm happy to report he did get out. He did go into the diversion program. He did successfully complete the diversion program. I never saw him again. Um, and I hope that he never re-entered the system in another capacity. Um, and I choose to believe that he didn't. I choose to believe because he would have come back to my courtroom and he didn't, that he is off successfully living his life and that the diversion program did what it was supposed to do. Um, but we need to give those opportunities. And so I would like to be in a position where I can set that policy as right. the head of the office. I can say, this is how we're gonna look at these cases. And this is how we're gonna try and dispose of these cases rather than hoping the right attorney happens to walk into the right courtroom at the right time. And, and that's critically important. And, you know, that goes back to having the right person in the right place at the right time in the right job, right? You know, you, you have the skill set, you have the knowledge, the depth, the wisdom to choose. And in that instance, you chose for another. Like you said, she wasn't being malicious. She just didn't know. You know, she didn't have the experience to make that kind of decision. But what you did impacts the recidivism rate. And that's the thing we know we've got to blow out all the hell, right? Because you, you talked about it before, that's that cycle that people get stuck mm -hmm. into. And unfortunately, with the American justice system as it is, as it has been, without people like you in place, we've had to deal with prosecutors and judges that funnel people that look like us into a pipeline purposefully. Whether the programs exist or not, there's only one path, one route in punishment, even though it may be taxing to the system, and you know hurts a community to a large degree and a wider degree over time at least in that moment some of them are making money because the prison industrial complex is a real thing and it, it, it's pervasive in some counties and you know and in some municipalities uh, across the country thankfully i haven't seen anything like that happening here for the most part i don't know the ins and outs i'm just a regular guy from Sawani, grew up on the south side of atlanta but it's refreshing to talk to somebody like you that understands the ins and outs and knows the details and understands that, you know, if we do these things, it will impact that rate. It will give people an opportunity. And like you said, you know, uh, we will choose to believe that he went through that program and he's having outsized levels of success. 
you know, he might be the millionaire around the corner. Who knows? It all came from uh, you taking the time to say, you know, that that bag of candy, the fruit, and those shorts and those cheap shoes that you tried to burgle out of Walmart. You know, that that wasn't it. We caught you, and it was a blessing. It was an absolute blessing. And, and that is an outstanding way to look at it. Now, going further into the fact that you're running for this position, we know you've got some opposition because that's the way it goes. You've got your position. You've got your... Um, You've got the things in your platform and what you want to run on. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, make sure I get the name right. But there's a guy named Brian Whiteside who is also running against you. And to be quite frank, I think he's been a bit vocal in terms of, you know, opposing you and, you know, trying to win the position over you. I would just ask from your perspective, as you see it, where are the critical points that where the two of you differ? And, and why would you say it's been a bit vitriolic between the two of you? Well, I can't speak to his motives. Um, he is the current solicitor, and um, and I, I have to say, I respect um, that he's taken on the role. I respect that he ran for office in the last cycle and won the seat. Um, but I have the vision to elevate that office, and and I have the vision to execute that office and to be efficient in that office in a way that our county deserves. So I, I can't speak to how he chooses to address me or speak about me. I have no control over that. I can control how I respond. And my response is, you know, I know that I'm uniquely qualified to hold this office. You know, I, not many people do the transition from public defender to prosecutor. Um, and I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to have the career path that I've had so far, working at each level on both sides and trying cases in all of the courts, in traffic court and state court and superior court and, and writing appeals on both sides. And that's something I'm incredibly proud of. The work I've done, I'm very proud of and I don't take it lightly. And like I said at the beginning, this is never a personal attack against my opponent. Um, this is not me saying anything negative about him. I'm just being clear that I know that I am the uniquely qualified candidate who can elevate this office and bring Gwinnett's solicitor's office to a whole nother level. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's fair enough. So let's just lean in a little bit. Would you say that you're taking it to a new level? He won the position. Would you say that he's done a fairly decent job? I know the consensus uh, amongst the legal community, a lot of it, there have been a lot of complaints. Um, and I, I know those are problems that will eventually bottleneck and, and just uh, over time just get worse and worse and worse. And so there are definitely some inefficiencies that I've seen. Um, that I would love to see addressed. And I know that I could take care of that. Got it. So when it really comes down to it, um, it's not a personal tag for you. It's about the position efficiencies and finding areas of improvement that you want to forestall these issues now becoming bigger issues for the most part. Yes. And I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, um, as I said, it wasn't something I woke up one day and said, oh, I'm going to do this great big thing and um, uproot my comfort and my anonymity 
for this role. No, um, but at some point you have to stop complaining about the problems right. and step up and try and fix them. And as I said, the, the solicitor's office is a high volume office. It's important that we have people there in place who know how to move cases efficiently, who know how to allocate our resources in a responsible way, who know how to ensure that we are not running up tabs unnecessarily and that we are being good stewards with what we are given. Gwinnett is a huge county with a huge budget and um, we can and should be doing more. And that's what I wanna do. And we've seen it, I've seen it work in other counties. So I know it can be done. I have to be clear about this. I'm not talking about some hypothetical philosophical utopia. Like I've seen it work. I know that this works. We have other solicitors in the metro area who are doing phenomenal things with similarly situated offices. So I know that this works because I've worked in those offices or I know those solicitors. I've seen it happen. And there's no reason why we can't do the same thing here in Gwinnett. Understood. Gotcha. So let me ask you this then. When he says, and you know, it, of course he was leaning in when he said it, um, his whole thing was, and I, and I don't want to take him out of context or say it wrong, but this is what I heard. Closet Republican, you know, I would think you're a closet Republican, that you voted Republican, however he said it. That's what came across as the dialogue was taking place. How do you respond to that? I mean, what's <laughs> What? So I think what I heard directly was that I take Republican money. Um, and so to that, I say, um, I do have bipartisan support, and I'm actually very proud of that. Um, the same way that uh, people that I've worked with when I was on the defense side, I had friends who were prosecutors. And when I came to the prosecution side, I have friends who were defense attorneys. Uh, while we are in an adversarial system, we don't have to be adversaries outside of the courtroom. And so when someone who has a different political philosophy or leaning than I do can still express their confidence in my abilities by supporting me, I'm honored because that's telling me that despite what differences we may have, and I am a Democrat, um, despite what differences we may have politically speaking, you respect my work product and you respect my ability to do this job and you believe in my ability to do this job. So yes, I do have bipartisan support. And I, what I've said to people who've asked me about that is in all the cases that I've handled, and, and let's just take the three years in Gwinnett County in the district attorney's office. For those three years, I tried very serious violent felonies and to, to jury trial, that's what I did. And at no point did I ask the defendant their political leanings. And at no point did I ask the defense attorney their political leanings, because that's irrelevant when we're dealing with the criminal justice system and we're dealing with the evidence and the facts in front of us. So I, I say that because it's important that we're handling these cases with integrity and with dignity. And my political background, as Democrat as I am, should not really be a factor when it comes to meeting the elements of a crime that may or may not have been committed. So I, I, I don't really know what to say to why he said that, but that to, to that I do say, you know, I've worked for Republicans, I've worked for Democrats, and this is, like I said in the beginning, it's a community issue. We all have to come together. We all have to do the work. 
We may not all agree on all of the components, but that doesn't mean we can't sit at the table together. Absolutely. Well, Lisa Marie, you might not know what to say, but I think you just said it. Just <laughs> so uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna let that marinate. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> nice, very nice. So what what as we round out and close out, I got to give you the last word. Um, everything you said been very compelling. But what do you want to leave the listeners with? You're running for this position. You're running for solicitor general. What's the critical factor, the thing that they must consider the most as we slide into the election season and it becomes, you know, we get down to it and we have to vote. What do you want to leave them with? I think the critical thing that we need to understand is that local elections are such a big deal. They matter so much. Local elections are a situation where that's what impacts our everyday lives. So the people who we elect locally are the ones that have the most direct impact on our lives. And we need to lean into that. We need to care. You need to care about the policies your local politicians have and how it could impact not just you, but your neighbor, your neighbor's son or daughter. We have a lot of young people who make silly youthful mistakes sometimes, right? And so knowing that they're going to be handled with compassion and with grace, but also with dignity and accountability is hugely important. And that's something that we need to worry about when we think about our local um, elections, when we think about our local leadership. You said in the beginning that one of the things we love about Gwinnett is that when we look around, we see people who look like us. You know, I am a mother, I am a wife, I'm involved in my kids' PTSAs <laughs> and running my kids to and from their different practices and, and doing all the things. My community matters, my church family matters, you know, and, and th- our local elections matter for that reason. It's important that we elect people who care about our entire community and want to see all of us thriving and all of us doing better, not just one section. Because as I said, again, crime is a community issue. It's not just a law enforcement issue or criminal justice system issue. It's a community issue. And I will be the candidate to work with our community partners to ensure that victims are getting the resources that they need, that they're getting the help and the treatment and the safety planning that's important to them. I will also be the one to make sure that I can work collectively with our other leaders, with our commissioners, with our sheriff, with our district attorney, because it requires collaboration. There's not one single entity, one single office that can do it all. We all have a role to play. We all have a a key in this, a key place in this, and we need to be able to work together. And that's what's most important because at the end, it's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's not about people knowing my name. It's about how does this impact our collective community? How do I continue to help to make the community that I've chosen to raise my family in the best one in the region? And that's what I wanna do. Outstanding, Lisa Marie. I can't think of a better way to end it. And or maybe just to add this. So folks out there, if you're listening, what I want you to understand with what Lisa Marie just said, if anything, then her election is just as important as the presidential election. (laughs) And that that is where we're gonna leave it by God because that is just how important it is. 
So Lisa Marie, thank you for taking the time to speak to us this evening. And hopefully we'll have you back on again sometime soon. I would love that. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really hope I answered your questions. Um, you know, I wasn't expect that throwback to high school, but you asked, <laughs> so we went there. So that, yes, that's indeed. fine with me. We edge so, the edges. We edge the edges. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. And banana bonds point the way. Thank you, Lisa Marie, for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you for caring about your community, and especially for your willingness to serve. It points the way for the rest of us. And of course, we thank you, our listeners, for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it, so please like and subscribe. Tell your family, tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ItchTheEdges. And don't forget to visit our website at ItchTheEdges.com. Check us out, join the movement, express your commitment to the cause cause for a better America, a better world, where we all can stand together as one community at the mountaintop. Be good to yourselves and each other. We'll see you next time.